joined on the line by Christopher Reagan. Dr. Reagan is the director of the Max Bell School of Public Policy at McGill University in Montreal and was a member of the federal government's Advisory Council on Economic Growth, who recently wrote a piece for McLean's magazine entitled, Canada Needs More Infrastructure Spending, But Not as short-term stimulus. Dr. Reagan, Christopher, welcome. Good morning. Good morning to you, Sterling. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure, sir. Tell us first of all about your participation in the government's uh, Advisory Council on Economic Growth. How did you uh, get looped into that, and what did you tell the feds? <laughs> Great question. Um, well, back in, uh, I guess, in, shortly after the 2015 election, they wanted to create an advisory council, and uh, they spoke to me, and they spoke to a dozen other people, and they put together this council, uh, which had a couple of economists on it. I was one of, I think, only two economists. Most of the people were business people. Okay. Um, and, you know, our, our assignment was to come up with, you know, good, practical policy ideas uh, that could improve economic growth for the country, but also to make it more inclusive. And I have to say, it was a tough assignment because, uh, you know, there's no simple policy lever that anybody has shown me in Ottawa or provincial capital that says, you know, pull here if you want more growth. Right. Uh, it's just not that easy. And if it, if it worries, you wouldn't, have to, uh, you wouldn't have to spend a bunch of time on it. You'd just be doing it automatically all the time. So we came up with a set of reports. I think there were a dozen reports over a couple of years, um, you know, each, each with uh, kind of different focus. Some were focused on the labor market. Some were focused on investment mm-hmm. infrastructure. Some were focused on, fo- focused on taxes and regulations. Uh, and we tried to come out with good practical recommendations, and we have been pleased to see that some of them, at least, have been adopted by the government. No, uh, it takes a long time, I think, to to uh, implement these policies and also to figure out exactly, you know, how to how to uh, practically implement some of the things that we were uh, recommending. But the government is chipping away at that list, I would say. Now, since the uh, pandemic has descended upon us all, as, and it's been since March, uh, has the, and, and of course the government has been compelled to respond and, and has done, in many ways, a pretty good job. Although at the same time, they're starting to cause a little concern among certain members of the, the, the voting uh, public uh, as to the amounts of money that are being right. spent. Have you and your uh, compadres in the uh, Advisory Council on Economic Growth, Dr. Reagan, been summoned back to Ottawa since COVID has happened uh, to uh, perhaps have a second round of input into what the new management pivoting is going to be all about. Uh, well, we the Advisory Council wound down its activities in, uh, I think, early of 2019. We, we wound up everything. Okay. Um, and to my knowledge, they have not gotten the band together, or if they did, they didn't ask me back. So, uh, but, but I must say that I think, uh, you, you know, the pandemic, uh, as, uh, of course, it's a tragic event, uh, but it's also a fascinating event, uh, you know, to an economist, uh, I'm an economist, mm-hmm. uh, because it's a very different kind of recession that we're going through. And I think we all need to cut all of our governments a little slack because it's not as if there is a well-established playbook for how to deal with a global pandemic. Uh, and that's actually part of what I say in this essay is that, you know, infrastructure spending, I think is actually a very good idea. Right. Uh, I think Canada has, uh, our cities across the country have need for infrastructure. And I think this has been true for some time. And I think this is a particularly good time to actually borrow publicly to finance good, smart productivity enhancing, uh, infrastructure. But uh, if you go out and, and kind of rush to, to design and finance a bunch of big infrastructure projects, that's kind of a weird thing to do at this time, because you may not be able to get them built, because there's a lot of people who actually aren't able to, you know, work in pl- pl- close proximity to others because of the pandemic. Well, that's right. So and that, because that of the nature of the recession is very different. I think we've got to think very differently about the kinds of policies we need. Yeah, good point, because you're talking about, I mean, something as basic as COVID impacting itself on construction sites, for goodness sake, Dr. Right. Reagan. I mean, if you can only put half the workers on the site that you would typically have to build uh, any project, then the project's going to take twice as long. 
That's exactly right. Uh, and, uh, and you've also got to make sure that those construction sites are equipped with all of the things you need to keep people safe sure. in terms of sanitation, things like that. But there's, there's the next step that's also a problem. So one of the reasons why infrastructure spending uh, is, is often a good uh, a policy action when the economy is in recession is for what economists call the multiplier effect. The idea is that if we spend a billion dollars on road construction and we pay a whole bunch of construction workers uh, their incomes to build those new roads, those construction workers then turn around and they spend their greater income on whatever, on televisions or restaurant meals or vacations or hotel stays or whatever, and that generates income down the line. And then it, it multiplies through the economy. But in this economy, even if you actually do build some new roads and you pay some construction workers, um, how, you know, what are they going to spend it on? They're not going to go to restaurants. They're mm-hmm. not going to go to movie theaters. Um, so so the, the whole multiplier effect of, of infrastructure is just a much smaller thing. Uh, and so it's just a much less effective way to get out of the economy. And what I say in the, in the paper is that rather than thinking about, and especially rather than rushing toward an infrastructure plan, I argue that what our governments need to do is really think about the kinds of policies that can be used to help businesses um, get back to activity safely. Mm-hmm. So what do you have to do? You know, what does a theater need to be able to do to get back to 50% capacity? What do restaurants need? Uh, what sort of uh, you know, personal protective equipment do they need? What sort of plexiglass barriers do they need? What sort of... Uh, you know, I don't even know what they need. But, sure. You know, what does a what does a chicken processing plant need, or what does a retail clothing store need in order to be able to get people to to come back to the business and feel safe? And and that's I, I don't I, I'm not suggesting that the government has no tools at its disposal, but they're tools that we're not used to using. So I think governments need to think through how we can make it safe to go back to work rather than let's rush out and build some infrastructure. Yeah, and, and, and by and, the way, I would add to that, getting kids safely in school mm-hmm. and kids safely in daycare is crucial if you want the parents to be able to leave the home and go back to work. Our guest this time around is Christopher Reagan. Dr. Reagan is a Canadian academic and economist. Well, he wrote the book, for crying out loud. He co-wrote a textbook called Economics, now in its 14th edition. Yes, eco- economics students all across Canada know the name Christopher Reagan quite well. He wrote a piece recently in McLean's magazine about infrastructure, saying we need more of it, but not as short-term stimulus. And uh, Dr. Reagan, that's where we'll pick the conversation up, because you do go on in the piece to tell us something we all already know, and that's the penchant for politicians to go for short-term bills. They want to spend a big gob of money on something that two or three later, years later they can turn around and go, look what I built for you. Vote for me again and I'll give you another one. And that's that tendency inhibits our ability to get much important or much more needed longer-term projects ever off the ground. How do you square that circle? Well, you're quite right. I, actually, I, I would be happier if people, if politicians were prepared to wait two or three years. My fear is that most of them want to wait only two or three months. And so they're really looking for, for uh, you know, for quick activity. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think there's a couple of problems here. Uh, one of the things I say in the essay is that it's, I think it's very difficult for governments to spend large amounts of money and to do it both well and quickly. Now, you can spend a huge amount of money very quickly and not spend it on good projects, but if you're going to spend it on good projects that are really going to deliver benefits over the long term, you have to carefully plan those those projects. And you don't carefully plan them in two months or six months. And if if you're talking about big infrastructure projects, I mean, these things require designing and environmental reviews and, you know, know, these are complicated projects. I'm in Montreal, where I've just been living through for the past five years a rebuild of a major interchange called the Turcot Interchange, mm-hmm. which is, you know, flyovers all over the place and it's concrete and steel all over the place. This is not something that happens quickly. It's something that happens uh, over several years. 
uh, and it was worth uh, I don't I'm not sure, but certainly a billion dollars, if not more. So these projects, I think, are very good for the economy in the long run if they improve our transportation, or if they improve our port facilities, uh, or if you know they improve our productivity or our health. I mean, hospitals are really important as well, mm-hmm. but you don't build these things quickly. And this is one reason why um, Canada created the Canada Infrastructure Bank. And this actually came out of a proposal from the Advisory Council. And the government created it. Um, and it's had a bit of a rough start, I have to say. Mm-hmm. The last couple of years, I think, has been a bit of a rough start. But it's now under new leadership. And the idea of the Infrastructure Bank is to use a, a small amount of public money to leverage a large amount of private money to actually uh, finance a lot of infrastructure, basically freeing up some public money that you can actually use some of the public money for some of the other kinds of infrastructure. So if you can use the infrastructure bank to finance public transit systems or east-west electricity grids or uh, you know other kinds of sort of revenue-generating infrastructure, uh, I think you can really do it. And another part of the Canada Infrastructure Bank is to be a center of expertise for actually thinking through the lot, the lot of the details that you need to think through for infrastructure, and to, to the extent possible, to depoliticize it. So that all of that logic is wrapped in the Canada Infrastructure Bank, and I, and I certainly hope under the new leadership that it can really take off. I think it, it does have great potential. And you talked earlier about it, and, and there's, this, there's this whole concept of good debt versus bad debt. It extends into our personal lives as, as very well as, as it does into the lives and, and the purpose of our government. Uh, in, in our own personal lives, Chris, we know about good debt. You, you, you get a mortgage. That's a good debt because you're going to live in the place and eventually hopefully realize a buck or two. Bad debt is credit card debt where you're paying interest in excess of 20% a month. Where are we? right now on because the debt the interest rates are historically low the bank yep. of Can- the bank of canada said they're going to stay that way for probably a year or even two so in terms of a short term horizon and this is where most of these guys are fixated uh, it's all looking like green lights as far as borrowing money is there danger to that I think there is danger, um, but, but let me start by saying that if you do need to build infrastructure, and I think, I think we do need to do so in this country, and I think many people agree with that, mm-hmm. then uh, you know, it, it, if, if infrastructure is going to last 30 and 40 and 50 years, it's perfectly appropriate to actually finance that infrastructure with borrowed money, which means future generations who benefit from the infrastructure also pay for some of it when their taxes are used to pay back that debt. Sure. So that's, in my view, that is good debt, in your words. Um, and if we're going to be in a world where the governments can borrow at 1% or less for 10 years or you know, 1% or slightly more for 20 years, that's pretty great. That's you know, relative to what it was like 20 years ago. Interest rates are way lower. Oh, yeah. It's not just because of what central banks are doing. I think we are moving toward a, a, an economy, and there's, this opens up another issue, but toward an economy with, with lower, longer-term interest rates. So, um, so I think it is a good time to borrow if you are building good infrastructure that's generating uh, genuine economic or social benefits for many years. However, um, there, there is a limit to it. And if you end up borrowing, uh, but not building that good infrastructure, but you're borrowing it and spending it on other things, yeah. uh, you still have to pay it back at some point. So I do think there is uh, there are limits to government borrowing. Now, Canada went into this pandemic uh, in a great fiscal situation relative to its uh, you know, rich country comparators. If you look at the G7 countries or the other OECD countries, you know, Canada's fiscal situation, the federal government in particular, was very strong. Mm-hmm. We had a very low debt as a share of our national income, what we call the debt to GDP ratio. Right, yep. It was about 31%. That's lower than it's been for a long time, and it's lower than it is in other countries. Now, we have, by the end of this fiscal year, we will have increased that um, by almost 20 percentage points. Yeah. So it was a very large increase happening in a very short period of time. Now, that doesn't get us back yet to the very high debt that we had, federal debt, in the early 1990s, which was more like 68%. So we're not there yet, and we're nowhere near Greek levels. But if we, if we 
are very, um, if we're very complacent about it, if we just proceed by assuming that, well, we can just borrow like crazy because interest rates are so low and it doesn't matter what we spend it on and maybe we don't have to pay it back. If we're going to take a very complacent view, then I think we can get ourselves in trouble. So one of the things that I do think we have to start talking about as a country is, um, you know, what limits are we going to place on ourselves in terms of borrowing and public debt? And how are we going to bring the debt to GDP ratio back down? Maybe not all the way back down to 31%, but how are we, what are we going to do to prevent it from becoming a problem? And that's a fair, and, fair, fair comment to make. And I'm almost out of time, Dr. Reagan, and I, I'd appreciate it. I don't want to get too political on you, but what, what we're seeing in terms of a fork in the road right now, Kristen, you brought us right straight up against it. We have this, this need for supervision, if you will, and a government seems that seems to be reluctant to provide any transparency or and pretty much top loaded with a political agenda to spend a lot of money on that may or may not involve actual economic recovery and development and that sort of thing. And and a lot of taxpayers, just flat out taxpayers, are starting to get a little concerned about the huge amounts of money involved and and the reluctance for public supervision. Yeah, and I, I think that's fair enough. Uh, I, I think there is some nuance that's required in this. I mean, I, I am one of those who looks at what the federal government has done in terms of relief spending. You know, things like CERB oh, and yeah. the wage subsidy were, I think, very important um, policy responses to a very bad situation. I think it was important to actually provide relief to people who were isolating at home and who were unable to then, you know, earn their income. No question. So I think that was very important. Uh, but, but you do have to think about what the end point is and how do we actually get back to some, this brings us back to the beginning. Like yeah. How do we actually get back to work safely so that people can generate the incomes so that the government doesn't actually have to provide relief payments? So I think we've got to think through all of that. And um, I must say, um, I, I'm, I'm a little bit heartened by things I've heard recently by our new finance minister, Christia Freeland, because for the first time last week, I heard her actually talking about limits on debt. Mm. And that I, I hadn't heard that in the previous eight months. But with her, and I'm, I'm very impressed by her as a general rule, I think she's extremely competent. Um, she's, she is recognizing that this can't go on forever. Uh, I hope... I hope that that's the beginning of a serious conversation that says, okay, how, what are going to be the limits and how are we going to make sure that the debt to GDP ratio doesn't get too high and how are we going to maybe even turn it back around? And are we going to levy new taxes and if so on what, or are we going to cut other spending and if so or what? In fact, I actually think this kind of forces us as a country to have another discussion really about government priorities, which is what Paul Martin did as finance minister in the mid-1990s, he instituted something called program review, which was basically saying, okay, look, you know, we basically hit the debt wall. We've got to rethink government priorities because government can't do everything. So let's think carefully about what government needs to do and what government doesn't need to do. And I actually think we are overdue for a Paul Martin-style program review discussion in Canada today. Well, I hope when that discussion begins, Christopher Reagan, we can tap you again for another conversation on where it might take us all, because I'm hoping that the discussion will include at least a recognition of the fact that there were lessons learned back in the 90s that perhaps we could learn again without making the same mistakes twice. It's been I'd be a- very happy to do that. I hope we could do it in person. That gives me an excuse to come out to Vancouver, because I love your city. Oh, even better. Thanks very much for this, Chris. We appreciate it very much. Lovely to have you on the program and a great way to start off our Saturday morning, sir. Thanks for having me. Dr. Christopher Reagan, the founding director of the McGill uh, University Max Bell School of Public Policy on the line from Montreal. Time to welcome back Isabel McKenzie to the program. Ms. McKenzie is the BC Seniors Advocate, and her office this week released a new report, the much-awaited report that's uh, entitled Staying Apart to Stay Safe, the Impact of Visit Restrictions on Long-Term Care and Assisted Living Survey report. Isabel McKenzie, good morning. Thank you for joining us again. 
Good morning, Sterling. So tell us a little bit now, when you were last on with us a few weeks ago, Isabel, you talked about this report, which was underway at the time. It was a survey that ended up uh, dealing with, well, I I believe the number was 13,000 respondents from across the province. Were you pleased with the engagement factor from people in B.C.? Yes, I think uh, we had over 13,000 valid responses, over 15,000 people actually participated. And I think what it um, speaks to is how much the impact of these visit restrictions are being felt by some of our people who are living in long-term care and assisted living and their family members. And when we looked uh, across at where responses came from, we asked people to identify which health authority they lived in, Mm -hmm. what age they were, whether they were in assisted living or um, long-term care. We have a good, broad representation in the 13,000 responses of every health authority, of of people in long-term care and assisted living. Uh, It was predominantly female, uh, however, 78% of the people who responded were female, but that is actually typical of who is involved in in the care uh, for for the elderly in the province. The family caregivers and people involved in caregiving generally are female. Uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, the impact of COVID on, on individuals and their families, individuals in care and their families. Confusion reigned supreme from the beginning of this pandemic, as particularly seniors in care, Isabel, were isolated. They were essentially, for their own good, they were told, but they were they were isolated and not told a whole lot more. And in the beginning, the family members weren't told a great deal more either. How much have the lines of communication improved since the early days of complete confusion? Well, I think we need to, if we think back to the early days, um, when we didn't know a lot, we had these pictures coming out of northern Italy um, and other parts of Europe of uh, great catastrophes Mm -hmm. from this virus. And so we prepared here um, by saying we're going to effectively lock down. We didn't technically lock down uh, everything, but as you know, um, restaurants and were closed and kids didn't go back to school and people stayed home from work and visits were heavily restricted. And while we figured out what to do and, and how this virus circulates, mm-hmm. and then we've slowly been opening, opening up. During that time, um, when we asked people, you know, what was your communication with the care home like during uh, the, what I would call the, the height of the first wave and what was it like before and what's it like now, Um, We do find that um, people don't have as much confidence in um, certainly family members in what's being communicated. Residents had a little more confidence. Um, They felt, they feel now um, that they know a little bit more. But I think that coming with that, interestingly enough, was we asked people, how worried are you about contracting Mm COVID-19 as a resident or how worried are you about your family member contracting COVID-19 if they were a family member. And that concern has diminished um, from what it was at the very beginning. And the other thing is that um, we didn't see the degree of concern that we might think we would find for a population that is so, um, for whom the, the virus is the most serious. And I think that gets to the heart of the more substantive issue that came out of this survey which is uh, the impact of these family separations and visit restrictions as we're in our ninth month now of these fam- some of these families being separated from one another and of some wives being reduced to visiting their husband you know, once a week for 30 minutes in the sunroom mm-hmm. where they used to go in every day before the pandemic. Exactly. Well, of course, now based on the, and you're right, at the beginning, we didn't know much. And But what we were led to believe and what we did understand from the beginning, Isabel, was that this was a disease, a, a new viral disease that was most likely to affect seniors, uh, seniors and people with compromised immune systems. And so we did, uh, we instinctively, and you, t- you talked about those numbers out of northern Italy, for example, and again, the, the numbers of seniors in that first 
first Italian wave were staggering. So we did what a lot of other societies did. We decided to protect the most vulnerable and essentially sealed them off. And again, for their own good, in air quotes after that. But that was the first reaction. It wasn't altogether bad reaction in terms of, of uh, reducing harm, but it also, the sealing off part turned out to be perhaps uh, the, 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 uh, the cure being almost as bad as the disease. Yes, I think, you know, there's a difference when you're talking about something for two or three months um, while we get time to get the resources that we need to get in place right. and get the plan that we need and understand things. And there was support uh, for it, uh, a lot of support for the approach, including my support for the approach in the beginning. I think what has happened here, Sterling, is that for a lot of parts of life in BC, the goal is to learn to live with the pandemic. So kids have gone back to school, businesses have opened back up, restaurants are running again, people are back on the buses, the shopping centers, even the movie theaters. That hasn't happened in long-term care. And so, and we're now entering our ninth month. And, you know, the challenge is we, we now see clearly we are in a second wave, clearly the second wave uh, in terms of the degree to which the virus is circulating in the community is higher than in the first wave, reflective of we are living with this virus in the community. Um, how are we, um, we, we have a visceral reaction to, oh, these numbers are high, this is dangerous, this is the wrong time mm-hmm. to look at. We need to We need to step back and we need to look at as we do with everything, what is the what is the actual risk? And not forget about this group of people. It's a small group of people in the context of 5 million people in British Columbia, but it is a large group of people in terms of the profound impact that these visit restrictions are having. And finding a way to safely return to some, some degree of normalcy, not total normalcy. The, the other thing, Sterling, was... You know, people are reasonable, family members and residents. There was high support for some form of restriction. Sure. Nobody, I shouldn't say nobody. (laughs) There's never a unanimous answer to anything. Um, But most folks. The vast majority of people, they're not saying throw the doors open and let everybody come in. Right. They're saying very minor, small changes to these visit policies will allow the residents who are living there to have some semblance of, of comfort and joy in the final years of their life. You know, the other thing that, that we need to remember is that during the pandemic, in the nine months we've been in these uh, visit restrictions, about 158 people have tragically died of COVID in long-term care. Yes. But Sterling, close to 5,000 have died from something other than COVID. Mm-hmm. And they didn't get to spend the final months weeks and days of their life with the people that they love. Yeah. That's that's the really sad part about all of this, Isabel, is the the isolation factor for both sides of that equation, both the the resident of the care facility and the family members uh, uh, isolated from each other. Isabel McKenzie, BC Seniors Advocate, is live on the line with us after having released her report, Staying Apart to Stay Safe, the Impact of Visit Restrictions on Long-Term Care and Assisted Living Surveys. And Isabel, my friend Jody Vance here at CKNW has a dad who is in care here in Vancouver, and she talks about it on the radio from time to time. And it's really difficult to listen to because uh, she doesn't get to see him very much, and of course, vice versa. And the problem is compounded by the fact that when she does get to see him, he doesn't know who she is. He doesn't recognize her. He has advanced dementia. And yet, he needs her. And she needs him. So let's talk about some of the recommendations that you have made in this report to connect people like Jody and her dad and thousands others of them around British Columbia to make those occasions more frequent. Yes. Yeah, so the first recommendation is around um, the recognition that these family members are essential uh, essential care partners to their loved one living in long-term care, and, and Jody is essential to her dad. Mm-hmm. And 
What we can do right now, even in the midst of these exploding numbers of new cases that we're seeing, even in the lower mainland, is we can allow the current designated visitors, and Jody is an example, she currently is able to go see her dad, but they've heavily restricted how frequently and where. Exactly. And we can allow the existing designated one visitor to go more frequently to visit the resident in their private room and to allow that more um, immediate uh, connection without significantly increasing the risk. These are people who are already visiting in the care homes. And indeed, Sterling, one of the things the survey points out is some people are able to do that. It's the same virus, Mm -hmm. and it's the same guidelines. And the current guidelines do not prohibit people from visiting residents in their private rooms. It does not prohibit them from visiting daily uh, or every other day, and it doesn't prohibit them from being able to stay for an hour or more. We can achieve all of that without a big increase um, to, to the risk. And I think we certainly need to move in that direction because, as you have pointed out, for people with dementia, if they are used to seeing their family member come if not every day, and 20% of people visited daily before mm-hmm. the pandemic. You bet, yes. But the majority, the majority visited at least several times a week. Now, and they would be in the room, and they would be able to have a conversation. Now, it's 30 minutes, it's maybe once a week, and it's in an unfamiliar area of the care home. Right. We're still going to have to keep some things in place. We're still going to have to have screening the visitor is still going to have to wear a mask, although the the, the masks have changed um, in terms of there are some clear masks available. Um, however, we've now put in place a requirement that they be medical-grade masks. Um, but once you've screened that person, they've washed their hands, they've put on a medical-grade mask, we've reduced the risk that if they have COVID, which we've already reduced by our screening and our temperature checking, If they happen to have it and we haven't detected it, the mask and the hand washing are yet another layer to reduce that risk. We can let Jody visit her dad in his room without astronomically or even significantly increasing um, the risk. So that's the first recommendation. The second recommendation is... About 30 seconds here, Isabel, please. Okay, so the two other recommendations are we are going to have to find a way to reconnect the family members who can't visit now, those daughters who haven't seen their mom or dad mm-hmm. in nine months. Yeah. We've got to find a way to connect them. And the last recommendation is we have got to have a better way of hearing the voice of residents and family members in long-term care through this pandemic and after this pandemic. And we've, I've recommended we create a provincial association that will bring those voices together to be at the decision-making table to shape what life is like in long-term care and assisted living in this province. The report is found at seniorsadvocatebc.ca. It's called Staying Apart to Stay Safe. The Seniors Advocate Isabel McKenzie is its author and our guest this morning. Thank you for this, Isabel. We always appreciate your taking time to join us. Well, of course, with the pandemic likely to be continuing through the winter, we're not really assured of any kind of vaccine realities until at the very earliest next spring, probably next summer, before the the likes of you and I have an opportunity to get one. So what are we going to do all winter long? Oh, my gosh. Well, a lot of us are making plans, and a lot of us are planning to do outdoor activities. We're going to be active one way or another. Cross-country skiing is apparently very attractive to a lot of Canadians. Canadians to the point where uh, there's a bit of a, 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 well, a diminished supply, to say the very least. We learned about this from our global newsroom in, of all places, Saskatoon. They filed a story there because one of the local ski suppliers was uh, not only out of cross-country skis, but they were getting calls from people from all over Canada, from Ontario, Quebec, the Maritimes, going, so have you got any supplies left? Can Can you ship us something? Well, we're out. Well, we're calling you because nobody around here has some. So we thought, if that's the case across that part of the country. How about on the other side of the Rockies? What's the story here where lots of people are planning to ski through the winter anyway? But what about this cross-country uh, upt? 
tick in activity and interest. So when Andrew and I got the story from Saskatoon, we looked at each other and said, well, there's only one guy to talk to in Vancouver. That's the guy. That's Paul Zirk up there in uh, North Van at the Destination Ski. And uh, Paul is with us this morning to fill us in on the local uh, situation here in, in BC from Destination Slope and Surf Outfitters. Paul, it's been forever. Good morning. Yeah, good morning to you, Sterling. <laughs> it it's it been, has been forever. It has been a while since you and I talked on the radio. Since, so let's uh, bring us up to date here the, this morning in 2020. Is there, uh, are you hearing the same kind of demand for cross-country gear that apparently ski shops on the other side of the mountains right across to the Atlantic Ocean are, are hearing these days? Well, uh, all three categories, cross-country uh, here in B.C. because of our more mountainous terrain uh the category called backcountry where people put skins on their skis and climb up the mountain and then ski back out uh, that category has uh surged ridiculously i have already ordered 150 percent more than what i thought i would need for the season wow because uh, my first orders are gone so yeah yeah significant significant uptick in interest in that sort of thing and it, it, uh, is the was the 150 percent increase in orders uh back uh, is that for cross-country ski gear as well paul well uh, uh i'm not a hundred percent a cross-country dealer i'm, I'm more of a, uh, a downtown skiing and back i know country dealer but uh yeah the cross-country business I, I was asked to try and get some cross-country gear for a school and uh, I, I literally can't get it. It's uh, my distributors that I would deal with are in Quebec and Ontario, right. and the demand from those areas and the demand across the prairies, which is <laughs> where you're seeing it, sure, uh, has uh, wiped out the supply. And part of the supply issue, of course, is uh, the COVID itself, the COVID uh, pandemic, because a lot of the factories are in Italy or Eastern Europe. And although the factories stayed open, there were no workers to build things. Well, it's interesting because the reporter in Saskatoon, where this story originated a few days ago, Paul, uh, decided to follow up because this little ski shop in Saskatoon was getting calls, as I said, from all over the country. So have you got any gear left? Because, you know, we'll pay the shipping costs, no problem. And of course they didn't. So the, the reporter learns about this. So she starts to do a little digging and ends up communicating with the Rosignol factory in France and mm-hmm. basically saying, so what's the deal with your Canadian customers? How come you've let them down? And the Rosignol people said, we haven't let them down. We've sent them absolutely everything they've ordered. Our shelves for Canada have been empty for weeks, and now we're working on back orders. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's that's very true. And and that for for our business and, and that backcountry category, um, you know, I'm I'm scrambling to find enough boots for that category because uh, the the interest is so high and and certain brands are already sold out for the season uh, and their only hope is they can find a way to put you know double shifts on in Europe and build more of the stuff but uh, there's a, certainly an economic risk to that as well you know for them sure. But that's yeah. ex- that's exactly what they, they they told her at the factory in France. We're we're try- we're doing everything. We're bending over backwards to try to fill these back orders, but it's going to take some time. So, Paul, if 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 it's not a cross country specialty shop that you're running there on North Van, it's a downhill place. I bought my boots from you, and my wife bought her mm-hmm. first pair of boots from you years ago. She still got them for crying out loud. Uh, oh, good. <laughs> well, the good ones last. You know, that's all there yes. is to it. So, yeah. um, how about uh, you were mentioning an uptick in the back country category? How about the the downhill crowd this year, the borders and the skiers for the winter of 2021. Uh, how are we looking there? Uh, same sort of thing. Um, obviously, the supply chain is bigger for that because the, you know, the the historical number of participants might be 15 to one uh, alpine or, or regular downhill skiers versus backcountry right, skiers. Sure. Um, but having said that, uh, again, some. Some products are already gone for the season, so some certain skis and certain boots uh, that we would have re- reliably been able to refill our shelves up to early January uh, are telling us, nope, sorry, done. And uh, they're, the Canadian importers' only hope is that they, uh, 
if there's an issue in the U.S., that they would be able to get some of that inventory sent up to Canada. Uh-huh. But right now, the Americans are playing outside, too. So Sure. So, Paul, I guess yeah. the message indirectly here, the message would be, for anyone listening, if you have a skier in your life or a boarder uh, in your life that you are maybe planning or thinking about uh, uh, some kind of Christmas gift for, uh, you know, new goggles, new, a new board, new boots, new whatever, uh, if that is the plan, then you should execute that plan really quickly while there are still supplies, <laughs> correct? That is very true this year, yes. Yeah, it's, uh, it's going to be an interesting year for sure. And I, I know um, that, uh, you know, we all followed the, the bicycle industry in June and July where I, I have a friendly competitor here in town who, who switches over to bikes, and, and he found that by July he basically <laughs> could close and go on holidays because he couldn't get any more bikes. Wow. So we're... We're looking for some some things that that will be the case that there just won't be enough, you know. So we're uh, yes, we're we're actively restocking, but uh, we're also coming to points where when we call. We're told, yeah, bad luck. Yeah, right. Well, again, <laughs> it, next year. <laughs> that's right. If you're doing any uh, holiday uh, gift shopping here, friends, keep in mind that the supplies are limited and there are not likely to be restocks between now and Christmas. So, so Paul, uh, a quick second, if you don't mind. Mm-hmm. For once you got all the new gear on and you're heading up to the hill, what's it going to be like when you get to Grouse or Worcester or wherever your destination is? Because it's not going to be like it was last season. There's going to be there's going to be distancing even on chairlifts right yeah exactly all the mountain protocols um australia did run successfully run their ski season and uh, and vale corp runs resorts there but uh, yeah it, you know the uh, up the upload capacity will be roughly half um i do believe you know that the holiday peaks if you're thinking of skiing at christmas or spring break you should be aggressively looking into your accommodation and and your ticketing and all of those things now because right. you you know might you might not be able to get there. Uh, I do think selfishly that because there aren't tourists, uh, we will uh, other than the big holiday peaks, we'll have uh, skiing to ourselves, so to speak, mm-hmm. as, as British Columbians, and we'll be able to. Uh, uh, have uh, the same slope with half its people uh, will suddenly seem like a much bigger mountain <laughs> and be a lot more fun. Well, that sounds like something to look forward to. So, uh, by the yeah. way, if uh, anyone interested in, in Paul's shop, uh, it's all online at thedestination.ca. Uh, Paul Zirk is the guy from The Destination uh, in North Vancouver. Has been forever in a day. And it's great to have you back on the air. We haven't done this for decades, Paul. Good to talk no, to you this morning. And, and yeah. we, we appreciate the advice. For anybody with a skier or a boarder in their life, this is important to know. If you're planning on buying a present for that individual, you better do it really soon because they're about to run out of just about everything. Paul, thanks for the tip. Oh, you're welcome. I appreciate the time. It was a lot of fun. Thanks, Sterling. There you go. Paul Zirk from Destination uh, Ski and Slope, uh, I'm sorry, Slope and Surf Outfitters. New uh, website address here, thedestination.ca as well. Paul Zirk, today, the 7th of November, marks the end day of British Columbia's second annual Carbon Monoxide Awareness Week. It has been on since November 1st through the 7th, and this year, the campaign again is designed to remind us about the dangers of carbon monoxide or CO and how to prevent buildup of said substance in our homes. Here to talk more about it and provide a little bit of smart advice from the ambulance paramedics of British Columbia, Dave Leary joining us from Surrey this morning. Dave, thanks for joining us and good morning. Uh, good morning to you, too, and thanks for having me uh, on your show. Well, it's great to have you with us, Dave. Uh, this is the second annual Carbon Monoxide Awareness Week, so clearly last year's was successful enough to repeat uh, the messaging all over again. So what's the key message for 2020, Dave? Well, the key message is that uh, carbon monoxide is a, it's a very uh, insinuous uh, uh, gas, and uh, it's caused a lot of deaths here in BC and in Canada, and... Uh, what we're saying is that we want uh, everybody to make sure that they have a carbon monoxide detector in their homes. 
And a carbon monoxide detector is not a very expensive bit of gear. Typically, if you go to Canadian Tire or somewhere like that, what's it going to set you back, Dave? Maybe 20 bucks? Uh, maybe. there's some, I've seen them up to about $50, which okay. is, uh, really is is cheap considering uh, the protection it offers you. Well, they talk about carbon monoxide, and you people, uh, you professionals in, in the business, talk about it as the silent killer because it has no smell, no taste, and no color. Difficult as all get out to, pre- to therefore detect ever, right? That's correct. Uh, it, exactly what you said. It is the silent killer. And unless you have a carbon monoxide detector, you would never know it was present until you begin to suffer symptoms. And, he, and even then, you may think it's uh, like a flu-like type symptom. Uh-huh. That, uh, and, and some of these symptoms from carbon monoxide uh, range in severity from like uh, tiredness and headaches short, to shortness of breath, impaired motor function, dizziness, chest pain, confusion, and then ultimately, it could go unconscious and, and can, you could die from this. Oh, so how, what are the sources of carbon monoxide? I mean, we have a detector, obviously. I have one, we have one in our house, Dave. Uh, but what is, how do you get carbon monoxide into your house? What, it is, what is it a byproduct of? Uh, so basically it's from appliances powered like by fuels like propane, natural gas, and kerosene. Oh, okay. And, and, and what happens is if they're not combusting properly and they're not tuned properly, uh, it produces carbon monoxide as a byproduct of that, and uh, and and plus inadequate ventilation is uh, a great risk also. So don't don't use things like gas powered machines, barbecues, portable fuel burning camping equipment, generators, or anything like that indoors. And we also say is that you should keep all your your um, gas fireplaces and your furnaces, or or even your uh, sometimes you have these um, portable water heaters. Make sure that they're all tuned and, and uh, regularly maintained by a, a licensed technician. I see. So a gas fireplace could potentially be a source of carbon monoxide poisoning, Dave? That is correct. And, and as we know, uh, most newer homes nowadays, that's, uh, that's what people have in their homes is these gas fireplaces. Yeah, it's a very popular option that people are going for. Uh, and it's kind of on side with uh, a lot of the green campaigns uh, who frown uh, for whatever reason on wood-burning fireplaces. But if you have a gas fireplace, what do you need to know about having it in your home that keeps you safe from any potential bad stuff from carbon monoxide, Dave? Well, like I, I said already, I think it was uh, make sure that you have uh, regular maintenance every uh-huh. year by right, okay. a, a licensed, licensed technician. And the other thing is to make sure that you have a, a carbon monoxide detector present in your home uh, in different areas throughout your home to uh, alert you if there was to be a, a problem or issue with uh, improper combustion. Ah, so perhaps more than one carbon monoxide detector is important depending on the square footage of your home. Is that the deciding factor there then, Dave? Uh, yeah, that's, it, that's part of the deciding factor is the square footage of your home. You know, we'd like you to see them have uh, close-by uh, devices that, are, uh, that produce uh, combustion uh, byproducts such as uh, carbon monoxide, and you should have one around close by your bedrooms also, and close to your, uh, if you have a attached garage, or even put one in your detached garage. Uh, vehicles are also a cause of uh, carbon monoxide, and, and a lot of people will, uh, in the cold weather, may run their vehicles or close to their uh, um, attached garage, and then that could subsequently seep into your home. I was looking over a list of, of uh, do's and don'ts and hints and tips that you and your colleagues at the BC Ambulance Paramedics put out uh, for this uh, second uh, Carbon Monoxide Awareness Week, Dave. And and uh, one of the things that you remind us of, and we had just a howler of a storm a couple of days ago, sometimes these windstorms particularly that come up, they'll toss a few items around in the backyard, and in some cases they'll cover up vents and and other air ducts that allow how gases and and, uh, and things that build up inside your house to escape naturally through the design of the house. So after a, a big windstorm, it's not a bad idea to walk around the outside of the house and check all of those vents and things, is it? Uh, that's correct. Uh, and, you know, like following a storm, you want to make sure, like you said, exactly, is that the uh, all the exhaust vents are free and clear of uh, any type of debris or snow, especially for our 
our citizens up in the, the northern areas of BC where they get a lot of snow, make sure that the snow is cleared from those areas. Uh, make sure your dryer vents and furnace uh, exhaust vents, fireplace vents, your chimney, and uh, those types of things are all clear of any type of uh, debris or snow. Well, you're the pro in this conversation, Dave. Typically over a BC winter, how many call-outs will you and the ambulance paramedics get for carbon monoxide-specifically related calls over the course of a few months in winter? Dozens? Hundreds? How many? Uh, I don't have the exact figures for that. I would definitely say it's in the dozens. Um, I've attended some of these calls myself, and um, I've even been to homes where... Uh, people call that they're sick, just generally unwell, and we show up and and it, we carry little uh, personal detectors on ourselves, the carbon monoxide detectors, and uh, they've gone off and uh, we've ended up, you know, transporting, you know, 10 to 12 people to the hospital that may be inside this home, and they're all displaying symptoms of this. So, um, But what I can also say is that approximately 300 uh, carbon monoxide-related deaths per year in Canada happen. And, uh, and more than 200 hospitalizations per year in Canada from carbon monoxide-related uh, incidents. Interesting. When you and your teammates arrive at a residence, Dave, and your, your little device goes off indicating the presence of carbon monoxide, before you take another further step into entering that residence, are you required to put on oxygen? Is that part of the, your, your training? Uh-oh, there could be carbon monoxide. On goes the mask. Uh, no, we don't uh, carry that type of equipment. So what we typically would do is we would uh, not enter the, the space and we would encourage or uh, get the uh, the patients uh, to remove themselves from uh-huh. the home. Right, okay. Uh, and we would also uh, immediately, typically these types of calls will also uh, have a, a fire department response sure. to have that proper equipment that they could go in and perform a rescue. Ah, so it becomes a joint operation very quickly in these situations, doesn't it? Yes. Okay, so uh, based on the response from the first uh, Carbon Monoxide Awareness Week last year, Dave, uh, and again, having and you personally have attended calls since then, uh, clearly the message needs to be repeated, and it will likely be so for at least a week every year going forward, don't you think? Oh, definitely, and and this is uh, we'd like to see this on the same levels as checking your uh, your smoke detectors every year. Sure. We'd like to see that everybody um, checks their carbon monoxide detector every year, uh, if not more. And uh, again, November one to the seventh is Carbon Monoxide Awareness Week, and and we'd like to see this continue year after year. Is there a website, for example, that you could recommend, Dave, just off the top of your head, where people could go and learn more about how, uh, first of all, what carbon monoxide is, what those devices are, and how to properly put one in your home? Well, I do know that carbon monoxide poisoning, there is a, a it's on HealthLink BC, does have some information on that. There you go. To do with, with that. And uh, the province of British Columbia also has, um, um, on their website, has carbon monoxide awareness uh, links to it. Excellent. Dave Leary, thanks very much for this. We appreciate your time on a Saturday morning, especially with the personal experience you've uh, you've, uh, shared with us uh, in carbon monoxide awareness. Thanks a lot, Dave. Thank you very much for having me. Enjoy your day. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.